I don't know, you got a job in Pennsylvania and you're going to be a, a lion tamer at the circus. Oof. Daring. <laughs> uh, no, but we got a hard line on Joseph's end. Hand me the rest of those pills. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Todd Mack here with Joseph Dorowski, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today we're talking about Harry Potter and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone, depending on which side of the pond you are on. Uh, this book was written by J.K. Rowling and published in 1997 or 98, depending on, again, which side of the pond <laughs> you are on. Uh, and today we're joined by a special guest, Tiana Homer. So welcome, Tiana. Thank you. What would you like the world to know you for? Um, probably Harry Potter knowledge. I don't know that I'm really good at my, <laughs> at least know a lot else. So <laughs> I think you're selling yourself short. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of a little. <laughs> How's that? Or a little okay. of a lot? Uh, I knew Tiana back in my, well, we, we worked in what we call the dungeon of the school the university library, which was the special collections that we worked digitizing. And it was we called it the dungeon because it was a dark room. The lights were off because we were doing a lot of digital color correction and, and in stuff. the basement. And it was in the basement. And there were a lot of conversations about whatever was on people's minds. And this was a period when <laughs> there was a lot of Harry Potter discussion. So when we said we were doing Harry Potter, I was like, I, we should probably get Tiana to come guest it on. It was between episode. book six and book seven, which is where most Harry Potter discussion actually falls in. Yes. And that, I mean, maybe we should say this, but that period of Harry Potter discussion, the thing that it makes me think of most is the speculation that happened with the TV show Lost. And I love this when you have a continuing <laughs> story that fans are trying to figure out what's going to happen and you don't quite know yet. And so there's just the pure speculation and trying to connect dots that are there, but yes. sometimes you connect them in the incorrect way. But I loved that, that stretch of Harry Potter fandom. Oh, absolutely. That was probably the time that made me the biggest Harry, Pot Harry Potter fan was <laughs> those discussions that we had. Awesome. Well, welcome to our podcast. I hope All you right. survive. <laughs> yes. First, first time guest. Oh boy. <laughs> Most have made it. A little bit of trivia about Harry Potter. When I say a little bit, I was just extremely selective on a few things because <laughs> there are, it turns out, entire websites devoted to Harry Potter trivia. Um, first one, J.K. Rowling has no middle name. The, uh, the K was inserted because the publishers asked her to use a gender neutral name because who would ever want to read a book written by a girl? And so <laughs> she used her first name, Joanne, for the J, and then she used her grandmother's name, Kathleen, to insert a K into her name. Uh, and some other trivia. The books have sold more than 400. Wait. What? Why is JK Rowling any more gender neutral than J Rowling? Or Joe Rowling, which, she, which is Joe actually Rowling. what she goes by. Yeah, she goes by Joe amongst family and friends. I don't know. You'd have to ask some publishers who okay. maybe wish they'd made a different decision. <laughs> maybe she was pointing out that JK, that's not really my name. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe it they was just, a, just... They need the Brontosaurus to come and smack down <laughs> yes. on them. Maybe following the tradition of S.E. Hinton, author of The Outsiders, who went by her two initials because who would read a book by a girl? Yes. <laughs> Clearly no one. Yeah. Um, uh, the books have sold more than 450 million copies worldwide, and if you stop to think about it, that is an awful lot. 
<laughs> of copies of Harry Potter that are out in the world. And it is the, the last book in the series. It's the fastest selling book in history. It sold 11 million copies in the first day of sales. That is incredible. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't put this into our trivia section, but just when I was poking around and finding stuff, it said that uh, because of security and fear of plot points getting out, they would not allow any translations before it was released in English. And the seventh book became the only English language book to ever become the number one seller in France because they wouldn't wait for the French translation. Wow. <laughs> they went ahead and bought the English version. That's awesome. So commercially successful, we we could say. Yes. Yes. I, I, I think it's a viable franchise. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> a little bit. So, All right. Todd, do you remember how you came to Harry Potter? I remember very distinctly how I came to Harry Potter. Uh, it was my junior year in high school. I was, uh, just really, I had a lot going on. Um, uh, there was like social stuff going on and school stuff going on and I was totally overloaded. And then my grandma got really sick and for some crazy reason, I felt like it was my fault. <laughs> and I was, uh, as close to like a real live legitimate nervous breakdown as I think I've ever been. <laughs> it was a really, really dark, hard time for me. And, uh, and one of my friends in high school said, uh, I went to him and said, I need to read something that can just like get my mind off of all of this hard, dark stuff that's going on. And he said, well, here's this book that's called Harry Potter. I think you might enjoy it. And I went up to my room and I closed the door and I lay down on my bed and I started reading and it like immediately just, uh, this wave of like, this sounds so corny. <laughs> I, I just felt so peaceful and at home reading those first few pages that like I, I get emotional almost every time that I read them now. I, I just, I, um, I really, uh, devoured the book and was a pretty big fan from then on. Although I always was, uh, I always was skeptical of like total, uh, fandom and so I would like wait for a little bit after the book came out before I would read it because, <laughs> because I didn't want to be one of those people until the very last book, uh, at which time I went and sat outside Barnes and Noble and bought it the night that it came out. I remember having this discussion about like, are you going to the midnight sale? And you were like, no, no, of course not. I'm not one of those. I'm not one of those people. Are you kidding me? Uh, when inside, like really on truly this, uh, this book, uh, kind of saved me in a really, really hard time in my life. So it means a lot to me. Tiana, do you remember how you came to Harry Potter? Yes, I do. I remember in high school, I was babysitting a family and I saw their boy reading it. And I remember thinking, oh, it's one of those books. Like, I can't read it. 12-year-olds read it. And <laughs> just kind of really put it off to the side and never thought twice about it until my brother for Christmas gave me the first four books hardbound. That's how late I came into this. There was four books out. Wow. And he gave them to me hardbound. And I was like... Well, I can't not read them. <laughs> like, they're hardbound. Those are expensive, right? And so I decided, okay, I'll read them. And I actually got through two books before I actually got hooked. Like, I liked them, but they were just another book. But by the end of the second book, I suddenly was like, I like these. I really like these. And then read them and then had several roommates who really liked them. But it, like I said, it wasn't until after the sixth book came out and I had, like, what, two years of just intense discussions and debates. And that's when I <laughs> fell in love with them and got to know every little detail about them. <laughs> and now it's going to go on your headstone. Apparently. 
Ooh. She knew a lot about Harry Potter. I could like copy one of the headstones in the books and just see if anybody catches the reference. Ah, let's <laughs> see if my husband will go for that. <laughs> good luck. Good luck with that. <laughs> so I remembered, um, and I checked the timeline and it checked out because I, I remembered reading the first and second, like just a little bit before the third one came out. And I was like, I seem to remember it was like in the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. And that was like the, the publishing time that worked out. It was my mom just had suggested it a couple times and I hadn't read it. And then there was one day for some reason she said, I really think you should read these. I don't think she'd even read them. She just read that this was a really popular series. And so I, for some reason I went and took it with me and I read the whole book <laughs> like in one sitting. <laughs> like it was like, it was one of those where like I kept checking the chapters. <laughs> like mm, I could read one more chapter. Yeah. That was totally me. <laughs> and, and then it's, you know, 20 minutes later, I could do one more. And then it's three in the morning. She never tried to stop at the end of a chapter. Yeah. And I vividly remember like that first time reading it, I don't think I read this way anymore, but like when, um, I mean, spoiler warning for the things we're going to be discussing, like when they, when they realize Nicholas Flamel is like a key figure in the mystery, I'm like, I know I read that. And I can remember like what side of the page it was on when I read it. And I flipped back through the book, like checking that side of the page to find the Nicholas Flamel reference until I found it earlier on. Wow. All right. Our producer, Andrew has something to add here. Is, is there something about Harry Potter that makes you check the, number of pages for the next chapter because i did the same thing and it like what? it could have been the same copy that you read <laughs> I'm sure it was like two months later but i can't remember ever having done that with any other book but you just saying that reminded me i did that in the middle of the night when i was reading it i don't think it's unique to harry potter it's just unique to really good books like I, I know harry i definitely have done that with one. uh the name of the wind i would do that which that book tricks you because it has like two page chapter, two page <laughs> chapter. And it's like, okay, I can do that, do that, do that. And there's four of those in a row. And the next page chapter is 75 pages. But you're like, I can do one more <laughs> chapter. <laughs> uh, I, if I didn't read it in one night, I read it in two days. Like I, I just flew through it. It was, it was awesome. And I, total I, revelation. I think I read the second book the next day. <laughs> I get <in> the whole <laughs> book. <laughs> and then, uh, I, I went and got the third book pretty quick after it came out and then i was there for all the midnight releases from there on out yeah and i was shaking my finger of scorn at you <laughs> you were <laughs> the the toughest what well it wasn't I, the last book came out like three days before my wedding <laughs> <laughs> and i re i read it all before <laughs> <laughs> for the wedding. I'm glad you finished it before. Yeah. before but I will say it also caused some tension during the family photos at the wedding because some people were starting to discuss some things and one person wanted almost stormed away from the family photos saying, no, you can't talk about that. Oh my gosh. Because <laughs> they hadn't gotten that far in the book yet. That would have been me if I had been there. <laughs> we're like, okay, wow. no Harry Potter talking. Come here and get the photos done. <laughs> wow. So uh, I'll go ahead and give a, a quick spoiler-free synopsis of Harry Potter, if that's all right. Please do. This is the story of a young boy whose name is Harry Potter. He is an orphan. Then he finds out that he's a wizard, and he goes to wizard school, and magical uh, adventures ensue. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. <laughs> So if that sounds interesting, and you've never read nor seen a movie or heard an, audio, uh, an audiobook of Harry Potter, there are m numerous ways <laughs> that you could get your hands on this. Uh, first, I would say just find the closest person near you and ask them if they have a copy you can borrow. Because <laughs> there's 450 million of them floating around. <laughs> but if, if that's not an option for you, we'll have links in the show notes for where you can purchase this on Amazon. Um, 
And so we will we'll make sure you you can find ways to get your hands on Harry Potter if you've never <laughs> done that before. Um, and it's like the Jim Gaffigan uh, pop tarts. Like, how do I get that goodness in me? <laughs> <laughs> before we do the full spoiler synopsis, just a reminder, dear listeners, that you can support us through Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash protagonist, or you can go to protagonistpodcast.com and click on the support button. And that will take you to a link where you can donate a dollar a month or, you know, $50 a month or whatever, you know, suits your needs or, or your a dollar once a dollar once. Yes. You can do a one-time donation. It would help us with some equipment need, uh, needs that seem to be looming for, for our little pro- podcast endeavor as we're nearing the one year mark. So, uh, if, if you've taken joy in listening to this podcast and you hope to continue listening to it, just any support you could, you could offer would be appreciated. Also, if you want to pause right now, Go into your Facebook app on your phone, which you are undoubtedly listening to this on, and share our link for this episode. For the Facebook page is uh, facebook.com slash protagonist podcast, and you can find a fan page there, and you can share links from there, and it helps to spread the word. You are our advertisers. <laughs> and, uh, well, unless we get more Patreon supporters, in which case we may actually be able to advertise. <laughs> but right now, you are our advertisers, and we appreciate any shares or uh, spreading of the word, be it through social media or word of mouth. Uh, we appreciate anything that you do to help more people know about the Protagonist Podcast. Thank you. All right. So now here comes the full-on synopsis, <laughs> full of spoilers. I wrote the last spoiler or uh, synopsis for Ghostbusters, and that movie was so much easier to summarize than Harry Potter. There's a lot more that goes into this plot. All right. A baby named Harry Potter is left on the doorstep of his aunt and uncle Dursley. The Dursleys were estranged from Harry's parents because the Dursleys are deeply normal, while the Potters were a witch and a wizard. <laughs> Harry was orphaned when the most evil wizard of the day, Lord Voldemort, tried to kill him. His parents were killed, but when Voldemort attempted to kill Harry, somehow the spell backfired and seemingly ended Voldemort's life. The Dursleys favor their own son, Dudley, and neglect Harry during his childhood. Near his 11th birthday, letters start arriving for Harry, but Mr. Dursley won't let him read them. Eventually, a giant man named Hagrid hand delivers a letter to Harry, revealing that Harry is a wizard and will be attending a wizarding school named Hogwarts. Despite the Dursley's protests, Hagrid takes Harry shopping for his wizarding school supplies at Diagon Alley. And while in Diagon Alley, Harry and Hagrid go to Gringotts, the wizarding bank, and Harry sees Hagrid remove a small package from a high-security vault. Could be important. (laughs) When it's time for the school year to begin, Harry tries to find the school train at platform nine and three quarters, but he can't find the platform. He overhears a family mentioning muggles, which is non-wizarding folk, and a kindly witch named Mrs. Weasley teaches him that he needs to walk through the wall between platforms nine and ten. On the train, Harry becomes friends with Ron Weasley and learns about Hogwarts. Arriving at school, the first years are to be sorted into one of four schools, Gryffindor, Slytherin, Ravenclaw, or Hufflepuff. Harry and Ron are both sorted into Gryffindor. During a broom flying lesson, Harry discovers he's a natural flyer during a confrontation with a Slytherin student named Draco Malfoy. Because of his flying skills, the head of Gryffindor arranges it so that Harry can play Seeker on his house team for Quidditch, even though he's a first year, and first years are not supposed to be able to play Quidditch. Uh, Quidditch is a wizarding sport that is played on brooms. After their conflict during flying lessons, since Malfoy and Harry agree to a midnight duel. While sneaking out, Harry and Ron end up accidentally accompanied by Neville Longbottom, a clumsy wizard, and Hermione Granger, a know-it-all goody-goody witch, and they end up chased through the halls of uh, by Hogwarts staff because Malfoy had tricked them and told the staff to go find Harry sneaking out after hours. While hiding, they discover a locked room with a giant three-headed dog guarding a trapdoor on the floor. Harry and Ron assume that whatever Hagrid took from Gringotts Bank is now hidden under the trapdoor. On Halloween, Hermione overhears Ron complaining that she's a stuck-up know-it-all, and she has a cry in the girls' bathroom. The 
the Halloween feast is interrupted when Professor Quirrell, the Defense Against the Dark Arts professor, runs in screaming that there's a troll loose in the castle. Harry and Ron realize that, her, realize that Hermione does not know that she needs to go back to their house common room, and they go to find her in the girls' bathroom. The troll is in the same bathroom Hermione was hiding out in, and together Harry, Ron, and Hermione are able to defeat the troll. Surprisingly, Hermione confesses that she was the one who broke the rules to stop Harry and Ron from getting into trouble, and she says that Harry and Ron were only trying to help her. Harry's broom goes crazy during his first Quidditch game, and they suspect Professor Snape, who seems to dislike Harry from the very first day of school, is trying to curse Harry's broom. Harry still catches the snitch and wins the game of Quidditch for his team. At Christmas time, Harry receives an unexpected gift, an invisibility cloak, which is exactly what it sounds like. Using the invisibility cloak, Harry wanders the halls of Hogwarts at night. He finds a room with a magical mirror called the Mirror of Erised, and when he looks into it, he sees his mother and father and other relatives standing behind him. When he brings Ron, Ron sees himself as head boy and Quidditch captain. Another night, while looking in the mirror, Professor Dumbledore startles Harry and says that the mirror shows the viewer their heart's desire, but it's not good to become lost in those hopes and dreams. The mirrors move to another secret location after this. Harry, Ron, and Hermione discover that Dumbledore has worked with a wizard named Nicholas Flamel, the inventor of the philosopher slash sorcerer's stone, again, depending on which version of the book you've read, uh, which can turn metal into gold and create an elixir of life, which extends the life of anyone who drinks it. They surmise that this is what is hidden under the three-headed dog. Uh, they believe that Professor Snape is trying to steal it. They discover that Hagrid is raising a baby dragon in his hut. They convince him to let them send it to Ron's brother, who is studying dragons in Romania. Harry and Hermione sneak the dragon up to a high tower to be taken away, but they get caught and have to serve at attention, helping Hagrid look for a wounded unicorn in the Forbidden Forest. Harry sees a cloaked figure drinking unicorn blood and is then rescued by a centaur. The centaur explains that unicorn blood can extend life and implies that Lord Voldemort would be willing to drink unicorn blood to stay alive until he can actually drink the elixir of life. After finals, Hermione asks Hagrid how he got the dragon egg, and he says he got it at a pub after he told a stranger that he's good at taking care of large animals. For example, a giant three-headed dog that he can calm down just by <laughs> playing it some music. Harry, Ron, and Hermione deduce that it was Snape in disguise who gave Hagrid the egg so that he could find out how to get past the dog that is over the trapdoor wherein lies <laughs> the Philosopher's Stone. <sighs> they want to tell Dumbledore about their theory, but he is in London. They decide they need to get the Philosopher's Stone that night before Snape gets it and gives it to Voldemort. Harry, Hermione, and Ron sneak through the trapdoor and pass a series of magical tests, including a room full of flying keys, a giant chess set where Ron plays the game and wins, but is knocked unconscious when he sacrifices himself to establish a checkmate. And there's also a logic puzzle that Hermione solves. Harry then enters the last room, where he finds Professor Quirrell standing in front of the Mirror of Erised. A voice tells Quirrell to make Harry look into the mirror. Harry sees his reflection sliding the philosopher slash sorcerer's stone into his pocket, and he feels the stone appear in his real pocket. Quirrell pushes Potter aside when the voice says he wants to speak to Potter. Quirrell unwraps his turban, revealing Voldemort's face growing out of the back of his head. Voldemort slash Quirrell tries to attack Potter, but touching Harry makes Quirrell's skin burn. Harry throws himself onto Quirrell to stop him, and he passes out from the pain. Harry wakes up in the hospital wing, where he has a conversation with Dumbledore that is a huge information dump, so much more than can be covered here. Some highlights. One, Harry stopped Quirrell. Two, the only one who could get the stone from the mirror was someone who didn't want to actually use it for themselves. Three, Quirrell cannot touch Harry because Harry's very skin is infused with magical protection because his mother died trying to save him. At the farewell feast, where Slytherin has easily won the House Cup, Dumbledore announces that Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and Neville have earned enough points that Gryffindor actually has won the House Cup, thus pulling the rug out from under the celebratory Slytherin students in the most public and embarrassing way possible, and ensuring that they become embittered little rage machines. The end. It all sounds so silly when you, when you say it like that, that fast. The centaur and the three-headed dog, it all just sounds, uh, the dragon. <laughs> so when I was writing the summary, I kept thinking, 
just bare bones, just only what's necessary. I'm going to skip this plot point because it doesn't matter. And then I'd be two paragraphs later and I'd say, oh no, I do have to explain the dragon <laughs> because it really matters now. <laughs> like it explains why they're in the Forbidden Forest later. So I've got to explain that. <laughs> it's a pretty tightly, I, I think for all of the crazy that happens, it's a, the, the whole Harry Potter series and this novel, um, particularly tonight, is all so tightly written. It's amazing. And there really is, it, you would be hard pressed to find, I mean, there are kind of moments of whimsy, but even moments of whimsy turn out to be important later on. Yeah. Um, we asked for comments from listeners if they had anything they want to share. <laughs> we got a, more comments on this than any previous time that we've done that. And um, longer comments. And longer comments. But a couple of them, I'm thinking specifically, uh, listener Thomas, he mentioned that there's like a sense of wonder that comes, like you keep introdu- getting introduced to new things and they're just kind of it's magical when you first encounter them. But like you said, it's not just there for the whimsy of it. You, you know, a lot of those things actually turn out to be plot points later, but as a reader, you kind of just think, Oh, that's fun that she introduced this thing. And isn't that kind of neat and interesting about the wizarding world? Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, well done writing that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Very well done. (laughs) So Harry Potter, where do we begin? (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good question. (laughs) So I've got, I've got some, go ahead. Do we want to tackle the, the character first, or do we want to tackle the world first? Because I think we're going to end up kind of talking about both of those. I'd like to focus on the character, considering, you know, the nature of our podcast. Yes. Let's just <laughs> go ahead and establish real quick, um, ra- is it rolling or rowling? I've heard both my whole life, and I don't know. That I I've heard both, too. I don't know. I'm going to go with rolling right now. All right. Oh, I say my whole life, but I just established <laughs> that I first came across this my junior year in high school. Though, I will say, I had a student in a paper say this semester... Uh, the first book came out when I was one. I was like, oh. <laughs> wow. I suddenly feel very old. <laughs> yes. um, Rowling's prose, it, it's just charming to read, and she does have a very nice style to it. And it reminds me, like the, the author that it most reminds me of, I'd say would be probably Roald Dahl. Okay. Um, and maybe it's just because there's evil or evil parental figures <laughs> that, <laughs> that are abusing the child protagonist, <laughs> which reminds me particularly of Matilda. But there's something about the style of those two that I enjoy quite a bit. You know, I have to say, I I reread this um, before this podcast, and I was very impressed at how normal Harry is, despite ten years of verbal abuse, physical abuse, <laughs> just all sorts of abuse, and he comes out of it. Happy and cheerful, and yeah, and with a sense of well-adjusted. <laughs> Good job, Harry. This, I know we had another podcast where we talked about a similar thing. Todd, can you remember which character it was? Rapunzel. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was it was Tangled. That- it was Rapunzel and Tangled, where we said, "Really, would she be <laughs> <laughs> that? You know, that social of a character that just yeah. you know delights everyone that meets her <laughs> when her upbringing was by evil witch who was you know yeah. emotionally abusing her." Well, I guess you can't say that Harry was delighted or delighted everyone he ran into because there were definitely haters. <laughs> yes, from the very beginning. All right. Um, and then also I just, uh, besides the pros, I do want to say like much like listener Thomas said, like there's just kind of a sense of wonder and kind of charmingness as you, you know, uh, as you go through and you get introduced to Diagon Alley and then, you know, things like the wizarding cards and the chocolate frogs and all the different kinds of treats and these kind of wizarding versions of things that we know in our world that are just different enough to be, um, kind of make you happy to, <laughs> to be introduced to them in this narrative. Well, and I feel like a lot of 
the excitement about this book that made everybody love it so much so fast is because it is set in our world. A lot of fantasy is set in another world with a different magic system and everything's different and you have to get to know a lot of new culture and everything. But with this one, it's set in our world. Like our next door neighbors could be wizards. Yes. And every child who read this book when they turned 11 was hoping and praying they got a letter and found out that this <laughs> book was actually true. <laughs> and Well, and it also allows the very clever device of Harry is both the protagonist, but he's also our eyes into this new world. So he's confused because he was raised by muggles and never knew anything about the magical world. So he asks the questions that a reader wants to ask about how does this all work? Right. And, and so we're able to be introduced to all the information in a way that feels more natural than sometimes like the, you said, those other texts where it's all a magical world. Like you have a, like a preface that, <laughs> you know, right. here's the whole history of this world. Or that- in between dialogue, there's like, three pages of narration of because this, this, and this. Yes. Or a character suddenly remembers something and shares this long tale. <laughs> right. Which you still get to some extent with Hermione, that she seems to play that role that when something needs to be introduced, but she do- Rowling doesn't want to like go through this long narrative of trying yeah. to fit it in. Hermione, Hermione just knows it from a book. Yeah. <laughs> I was just uh, checking the recesses of my mind out as we were talking about the prose. The the writer that this actually remind, reminds me of and reminded me of when I read it was C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's something in the kind of matter-of-fact tone of the narrator uh, where um, the, the narrator isn't talking down to the reader. Um, or, uh, I, don't, I don't know, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, <laughs> but, uh, but it felt really important to me. Um, and Lewis, Lewis has a long essay where he writes about how to write for children, but he says, um, in, in part of that, he says, uh, the only way I could ever, I could ever write for children myself consists in writing a children's story because a children's story is the best art form for something you have to say. Just as a composer might write a dead march, not because there was a public funeral in view, but because certain musical ideas that had occurred to him went best into that form, where the children's story is simply the right form for what the author has to say. Then, of course, readers who want to hear that will read the story or reread it at any age. I'm almost inclined to set it up as a canon that a children's story which is enjoyed only by children is a bad children's story. The good ones last. A waltz which you can only like when you are waltzing is a bad waltz. And uh, there was just... You know, being a, a junior in high school and having what felt to me like very adult problems that I was going through, uh, it was just so awesome and refreshing to read uh, this story that was written in a completely different way. Um, and that, but that, that tone just over the first couple pages, um, that, that is carried throughout the novel, I think is really, uh, one of its strongest points. Um, it, Reminds me when I was go- going through and gathering trivia, it said that uh, Rowling had no age group in mind when she wrote this. Like she didn't, and it was the publishers marketed it to nine to eleven year olds is what they thought the tar- target audience was going to be, and that's who it was initially marketed to. Then they discovered that everyone in the whole world will read it, no matter age nor <laughs> language <laughs> nor <laughs> no barrier will stand between readers and Harry Potter. When I was in Jerusalem several years ago, we went to a bookshop because my brother actually bought me all of the book, the Harry Potter books, except number six. And I don't remember why. And I bugged him about it forever. When we were in Jerusalem, he said, fine, I'll buy you Harry, Harry Potter six. And we went to a bookshop and he bought it for me in Hebrew, which I don't speak modern Hebrew. <laughs> so that's fun. But we were joking about that. And the bookseller said, that's actually how I learned to read English and to speak English is I bought all the Harry Potter books in English 
so that I had to learn it to read it. <laughs> and that she learned it all through Harry Potter wow. books. So I do did. you read, do you speak ancient Hebrew? I used to once upon a time. <laughs> <laughs> Once when I went and went to college. You remember when she asked her what she wants to be known for, and she said, "Oh, just Harry Potter." Yeah, yeah. she speaks ancient Hebrew. Well, reads more like it. She helped me. I some just think with- that's funny. Like, oh darn it, they only have it in modern Hebrew. <laughs> if they only had it in ancient Hebrew, I would be fine. Well, it turns out they don't have words like Quidditch in the Bible. So, well, side yeah. note, it's been translated into ancient Greek and is the longest text that has ever been that is published in ancient Greek now. That's awesome. <laughs> We had a copy in Latin floating yes, around. Yes, it, it is in Latin as well. Uh, it's it has more languages, I think, than any other modern book. Is something wow. else I came across in the trivia, but didn't include because there's too much trivia about Harry Potter. All Dang. right, so let's talk about Harry himself. We've already mentioned he's shockingly well adjusted <laughs> considering his <laughs> his childhood. Um, but what else stands about, uh, out about him? I think when we, people talk about Harry Potter so often, we do get kind of hung up talking about the world and the idea of Hogwarts and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the muggles versus the wizard and all these other things. But what makes Harry himself interesting, do you think? One thing I noticed this read through that I probably noticed before, but I was thinking of things like this, um, is that even here in the, the first book, he plays the hero all the time. Like it starts when he goes and catches the remember all. From Draco. He's like, I've got to get this away from it. And um, he finds out about Norbert, the dragon, and he decides, I have to fix this problem for Hagrid. You know, Hagrid's an adult. He can fix his own problems. But Harry's like, no, I can't. can't (laughs) Well, I mean, look at all the other monsters he's raised and still there. But Harry's like, no, I'm 11 years old and I can fix this problem. And he does. Um, he rescues Hermione from the troll instead of saying, Hey teacher, Hermione's in the bathroom and doesn't know that there's a troll here. He's like, no, we got to go save her. Um, he spends half of his time doing detective work to try to figure out what's going on with the stone. Then he tries to stay, uh, still go steal the stone to keep it from Snape. And then, um, he tries to stop Ron and Hermione from coming with him because no, I can do this. You don't need to get risk into- yourselves. You don't yeah. need to risk yourselves. And when they insist on coming, even through the entire obstacle course, if you will, to get to the stone, every single time he goes first, he jumps through the hole first. He runs through the room of flying bird keys, just knowing he's going to get pecked to death. He's the one who goes through the fire. Like every single thing, he's like, "No, I'll go first. You go back for help." Like he just, ha- he's. So good. He doesn't care how great he is, that he's this famous person. He just wants to be good. And he shows that by trying to save everything. So do you feel like that's... Because it, 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 it seems like at times it's a liability for him. Oh, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, okay, okay, I'm going to raise this point, but... uh the stone would have been fine if he hadn't tried to go get it. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that, Quirrell's not getting that out of the mirror of Eris. <laughs> no, he's not. But Her- Indiana, Indiana Jones syndrome. Yes, that uh, nothing would have changed if he hadn't gone on the adventure. Right. <laughs> That's also probably one of Harry's flaws, is that he thinks he can fix everybody, everything, but nobody else can. Despite the fact, and maybe it's because he's 11, mm-hmm. like, he doesn't think... I'll bet Dumbledore knows more than I do, and he could probably protect the stone <laughs> even when he's not here. Yeah. Like, In fact, the situation probably got worse when Harry was oh, down absolutely. there and got the stone out of the mirror. <laughs> <'Cause> only <laughs> right. because it showed up in his pocket <laughs> yeah. did it become accessible. Yeah. Yeah, I just think, I think it's really interesting that 
um, at times this, I don't know if we would call it hero complex or goodness as you've, as you've described it, uh, at times it's so laudable and other times you're like, Whoa. Um, well, it's like in Blink you when they idiot. say, why doesn't anybody ever go to the police? Like, just go to a teacher, go talk to Dumbledore and say, listen, uh, I, I mean, you would think that the he would Snape have character. This. I've got some bad <laughs> suspicions about the Snape guy. I have some, uh, but, but they don't. And, and, and Rowling does her best to explain why they don't, they don't go to the teachers. Um, but I just think it's, the- I think it's an interesting piece of his character, uh, that he's always throwing he himself go- into trouble. Yeah, he does go to Hagrid about Snape, and Hagrid says, oh, you're just a silly kid. He's a teacher. He wouldn't try to steal the stone. They do talk to McGonagall, who says, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just kids. Trust us adults. Which, as adults, now that I'm a mom, I do the exact same thing. (laughs) I got this. You know, but as you're reading from the 11-year-old perspective, it's kind of like, hello, I have this information, and you don't understand. And so they were trying to go to Dumbledore. But he wasn't there. Surprise. And yeah. well, I, I also think. So you've mentioned all the times that Harry like goes out and tries to fix these, and he gets incredibly mixed results. <laughs> yes, he does. And also like feedback from adults, like when he goes flying after Malfoy to get the remember all back, like he's breaking every rule that he's been told, and they in turn break the rules for him so that he can be the star of the Quidditch team. Youngest Quidditch player in a century. <laughs> yes, and so he's like thoroughly rewarded. But then when he takes the dragon up. Um, he gets ringed by McGonagall in a way, like, once you read the rest of the books, it's like, what was McGonagall thinking that no children, a child has ever been out of <laughs> their room right. after hours? Cause she like <laughs> treats this as though this is the greatest blasphemy in the history of Hogwarts that three students were out. Which <laughs> also makes me laugh because the amount of points she takes away from that are almost exactly the same as the number of points they get back for, they get back for saving, for the, saving the, the wizarding world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one like, of my notes for us to discuss was house points. What insane <laughs> system is this? Is that house points or Quidditch points? Meaning, meaning the house points that like one point for you for knowing an answer, fifty points for you for being out of bed, well, fifty on, points for you for saving the world. <laughs> the very first time he goes to a potions class, he loses two whole points <laughs> from Snape, and I. I was like, wait, two points? And that's like a huge yeah, deal. There's and rapid then, inflation through the books, too. Because well, from here on out, it's five points. You never see less than five after the first book. Three right? chapters later or something, you know, yeah. it's suddenly five points, ten points. Apparently, maybe there's like a first day rule for first years. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, on your first day. <laughs> you can only lose one point. <laughs> I always, I've always had this secret fantasy uh, that I would, I want to design a class around the house points system. Uh, and grading, but I don't, I'm not sure how well that would work. <laughs> I like, I'm still trying to crack, I'm still trying to crack that nut. Well, you could, you could throw in Quidditch and just have an insane <laughs> Deus Ex Machina to, to end the class. <laughs> like, if one student gets this, everyone wins. <laughs> I do do that whenever we play, uh, when we play like Hangman or Pictionary. I always, the last one, I just say, this is a golden snitch. It's worth 5,000 points and whoever gets it wins. <laughs> <laughs> Like I wish, yeah, I, I like that. Delay. I will definitely be employing that more with my children <laughs> when it's time for the, you know, the game to end. Okay, Golden Snitch time. <laughs> brilliant. That was invented by a parent to make it just end. <laughs> All right, so there's the trio of Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and they kind of define a lot of the action that we see in the series. And it's for me, it's maybe it's hard to separate how well I know them from all the other books because I've read and slash listened to the audiobooks of them many times. But how well defined do you think 
Ron and Hermione are, uh, starting from this very first book. Well, Her- or Hermione is pretty defined as, I know everything I want to ask, answer every question that's ever posed to me. I follow the rules until I want to break them. Ron is kind of defined by not being defined. I mean, isn't that his life? Yes. He's in the shadow yeah. of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, his his main character trait seems to be that he's... I mean, he, he even s- says that explicitly. Like, if I do exactly what my brothers have done, it's normal because they've done it already. Yeah, it's no big deal. Yeah. And if I don't, I'm a failure. <laughs> That's a pretty big <laughs> shoe to fill. Like, all of my six brothers' shoes... <laughs> Five brothers? Five. Five brothers. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on Ron and Hermione specifically? Uh, I love I love Ron and Hermione. I think uh, Tiana nailed it on the head uh, with defining who they are. I think they're well developed um, in this, and I think that they're true to their characters uh, throughout the series. Um, our listener, Dan, about Ron, he mentioned that one of his biggest beefs in the entire series is that Ron is great at wizard's chest, which just <laughs> seems out of character that the game of skill and logic and planning, it, which don't seem to be strong suits for Ron in any other aspect of his life <laughs> at all, are what he, you know, is his thing that he has to do for the group when they go through the series of, um, barriers, you know, before Harry pointlessly and recklessly frees the philosopher's stone <laughs> from the mirror of Arisen. Putting it five feet away from Voldemort himself. Um, so what do you think? Do you think it's earned that Ron is good at chess and Hermione particularly is, is like, horrible, is at, horrible it. at it? Like she never ever wins at chess. And that is different because it's the same game as muggle chess. Right. It's and so the, it's the, not like it's a brand new game to Hermione either. Mm-hmm. I kind of figure that Ron has to be good at something. <laughs> and well, and they would talk about how this is an old chess set. It was his uncle Billius's, I believe. And so the pieces know him. So it sounds like he's been playing this with that chess set for a very, very long time. But there's also the fact that the chess pieces help. They talk to be like, no, don't send that guy. We can, af- we can yeah. afford to lose that one. Don't send me. And Ron knows when to listen and when to ignore them. Right. But that doesn't help him in the final chess. chess True. <laughs> but pr- probably the chess pieces have taught him over the years yeah. how to play chess. He's had like a personal tutor. Right. Uh, listener Thomas responded to that earlier comment by saying that Ron has confidence about chess because of practice. He has little confidence about life for the same reason. Ron's life has been tough in the shadow <laughs> of interesting and accomplished older siblings. He lacks confidence for most of the series. And at first I was kind of like, I buy that. But then I was like, no. <laughs> Still, it still bugs me that Ron is amazing at wizarding chess. <laughs> well, it maybe bother because me he's not all. confident in anything, he spent his entire childhood playing chess. <laughs> oh, you don't even—it's bugged me the same way. Listener Dan mentioned it. It's always bugged me, particularly the, that combination of Ron being great at and Hermione being awful at it. I have no—that seemed, seems out of character I, for both of them. I have no problems with it. Probably, be, I don't know. Part, maybe partly because I identify with Hermione a lot. This, you know, like I want to know the answer to everything. And I like to follow all the rules. I just find myself uh, seeing the world through Hermione's eyes. And I am horrible at chess. Horrible. <laughs> so it doesn't surprise <laughs> me that she that she would be. You also see Hermione doesn't really have a lot of respect for games. Like, she always kind of has this personality towards Quidditch that's kind of like, it's just a game. Like, she do- doesn't put her all into right. it. Maybe that transfers over to all games. Why play chess? You could, like, be reading a book. I could see that. All right, you guys are convincing me <laughs> a little bit. Um, and I do, I do want to say, like, I, rereading this first book, it reminded me, like, how 
like very vital and important things like Quidditch and House Point Spiel in this one. And by the end of the series, it's like no one cares. Well, at that's all. because by but, the end of the series, they're like yeah. trying to save the well, world. Well, and I, I think that's so true to like that age of like a building real mom story as you're like growing and maturing and you're entering real life. Like there are things that really matter to you a lot at a certain adolescent period of your life that stop mattering. And it doesn't mean they shouldn't matter when you're at that stage. It's just at that stage, they're important. But later on, you look back and you're like, why did I care so much <laughs> about that thing? Turns out other things are more important in life. <laughs> Like, I just, but I think the, the book series as, as a seven year journey does a good job of kind of laying that out and letting that happen naturally for the characters. Well, and one of the things I've decided is because the first book is a weaker book, um, compared to the later books. I mean, it's her first book that she ever wrote. And I, I kind of approach these books as, you know what? I'm going to decide that everything in here is right. And if there's something that doesn't seem right, I'm going to find a way to make it right <laughs> and make it work in the world. And one of the ways I've been able to do that with book one is I realize I'm looking at this through an 11 year old's perspective, which is a lot weaker than a 17 year old's perspective with a lot more world knowledge. I, uh, there's a, there's a moment for Harry. I was, I was trying to think as I was reading through this, um, you know, what's Harry's motivation. And, uh, I came across this thing at the very end when, uh, Harry says, we have to go get the stone. And Ron and Hermione say, no, we can't do that. We're going to get in a bunch of trouble. He says, so what? Don't you understand? If Snake gets hold of the stone, Voldemort's coming back. Haven't you heard what it was like when he was trying to take over? There won't be any Hogwarts to get expelled from. He'll flatten it or turn it into a school for the dark arts. Losing points doesn't matter anymore. Can't you see? Do you think he'll leave you and your families alone if Gryffindor wins the House Cup? If I get caught before I can get to the stone, well, I'll have to go back to the Dursleys and wait for Voldemort to find me there. It's only dying a bit later than I would have because I'm never going back to the dark side. I'm no, I'm never going over to the dark side. I'm going through that trap door tonight and nothing you two say is going to stop me. Voldemort killed my parents, remember? And that's like, to me, that's Harry Potter now from this moment through all the rest of the novels. I agree. The, he just is, he, he 100% focused on that. And sometimes it's to his benefit and sometimes it's to his detriment, but he's always true to that one sentiment. Like he will not stand by and let Voldemort, uh, come alive. And it's, it's why the house points just become totally irrelevant because up until this point, uh, he's motivated by something else. He's excited to be in wizarding school and he's excited to have friends for the first time. And there's a system that makes sense and he's playing a game that he loves. Uh, but at, at this moment, uh, like a, a switch flips in his head and he becomes basically a one trick pony, which is <laughs> I'm going to stop Voldemort come hell or high water and, and nothing anybody says or does will stop me. And you can come with me if you want. Uh, or you can leave, uh, leave me alone if you want, but that's what I'm doing. Uh, and I think it's the, it's his one defining characteristic from this point on. Certainly he's not the best planner in the, <laughs> the history of leaders. That's why we have Hermione. <laughs> yes. Well, and I think this is why, um, we need that core friendship between the three of them. Though, mm-hmm. I guess, what is Ron really adding to this? Comic <laughs> effect. Yes, he's the comic relief and he's, he's, um, He's the most savvy about wizarding culture, not facts of the wizarding world. That's where Hermione comes in. He adds all the information we need to know about wizarding. Right. About the world, not, again, about, like, the facts and the history and the spell work and all that. Um, But don't you think, don't you think at some level that's kind of a cheap, uh, I'm sorry, (laughs) I don't want to be confrontational here, but 
But uh, when you think of your friends, do you think, well, Sally is my friend because she offers me uh, knowledge of <laughs> nobody thinks that. We think they're my friend because they're my friend. Well, sure. And he's Hermione's friend, despite the fact that she gives him all of the book knowledge that he needs to learn. But I don't think I'm, Joe I'm, was I'm, saying I'm, that. I'm saying like from a storytelling perspective, like Harry's the, the leader that maybe isn't the greatest planner. Hermione's the source of all knowledge. <laughs> that is needed. Uh, so what is Ron bringing to this? And like Tiana said, he's, he's the comic effect. Uh, and then he kind of, his insights tend to be from that. So I'm not saying like, this is what, how Harry values the friendship. I'm just saying from the storytelling perspective, what roles are these three filling? But what I'm saying is why can't Ron's role be, I'm Harry's best friend and I've got his back always. So he's a Samwise Gamgee. Well, always minus that one time. <laughs> minus that one time when he leaves. <laughs> But you know what I or mean? Actually, like, like those four it, types. Does he have to? Does he have to have more of a role in in the story than I'm Harry's best friend, and I and I stick with him, no. and we have adventures together? No, and I think that's why Harry likes him. Like one thing I was noticing is that all of Harry's friends are kind of like the underdogs. Nobody likes Hermione because she's an insufferable know-it-all. Ron is poor, and you know all of his brothers have done everything first. Neville has like no magical skill, and it, it's like Harry for the first time gets to come and make friends and. He, He's always been the underdog and he pulls them in. Right. And I mean, even as we go on in the series, all of his friends you see in some way are like these lesser class. But as we read them, they're, they're like the epitome of Hogwarts. They're like the best people there. When really, right. if we were there, maybe, I don't know, Seamus Finnegan would be the cool kid. <laughs> it's, it's hard to imagine a world in which Harry Potter's not the Zach Morris of Hogwarts. <laughs> If you think of how often Harry is hated by everyone at Hogwarts. Yeah, but Zach had his rough days, but his team's backfired. So, Joe, you you see Harry as the Zach Morris of Hogwarts? Well, I'm saying he is like... He's famous before he sets foot in there. He, like, right. uh, Gryffindor goes nuts when he is uh, selected into their house. Right. Um, and everyone expects greatness from him. And he get he does get special treatment. <laughs> like, he, he does. He just does. Uh, he gets special one-on-ones with Dumbledore in which the meaning of life is laid out for him. <laughs> <laughs> he gets made, uh, he gets put onto the Quidditch team when every other first year desperately would want to do that. But there's a rule against it except for Harry Potter, with no real explanation ever given in the text as to why he gets the exception made for him. He gets given the greatest broom. Yeah, he gets given the greatest broom just given to him. Okay, that one just still blows my mind. Like, did McGonagall buy it? Did it come out of school funds? He could have afforded it, but magically this broom And and it'd be kind of like Zach Morrissey. He breaks the rules all the time. Sometimes he gets caught. Sometimes it works out perfectly for him. (laughs) And sometimes he goes to detention with Hagrid. Yeah. Yeah, even his, his best friend. Even his punishments aren't yeah. usually that bad, unless Snape's giving them. But I, I really think Harry is, like, while he's there, whether he wants to be or not, he's the center of the Hogwarts universe. Like, he's the one that everyone is going to know who he is. True. Every other yeah, student I agree with that. I think it's interesting that Harry immediately and instinctively hates Draco. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it even says that he reminded him of Dudley. and. Uh-huh. I think that's why it's like all of his hatred for Dudley got funneled into Draco. <laughs> um, real quick, before we move on to, to Draco, though, I did want to touch on this, that a couple of people, when we asked for comments, more than one mentioned that, that they love the scene where Harry, Hermione, and Ron fight the troll. And uh, their friendship just becomes cemented in that moment. And I think the, the text, the line is something like, there are some things you can't do without becoming best friends, and fighting a troll is one of them. <laughs> something along those lines. And I love how she used that to not have to, like 
detail out Make than becoming friends. Yes. <laughs> Suddenly they're just friends. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. I, it, it's, um, <laughs> it's the part in the story where I thought that maybe Ron and, or maybe Harry and Hermione would have a thing. Uh, <laughs> well, stay I, tuned I, for future episodes I, to find out how that works out. I, I imagine once a year we'll be doing a Harry Potter episode. <laughs> <laughs> Next uh, six years. Yeah. <laughs> Similarly, come, come May, we'll have another Star Wars episode. <laughs> Um, well, and I also think it's interesting, still in that scene, speaking of Ron, Ron is the hero of that scene. He's the one who uses the spell to knock out the troll, which is actually the reason why Hermione was in the bathroom crying in the first place, <laughs> because of that same spell, <laughs> yeah. because of her teaching, because of her teaching Ron how to use that spell. He's able to actually do it. Um, so just real quick, uh, listener Liz, uh, said, talk about the friendships. They're the best. Uh, listener Katie mentions Ron, Hermione and Harry bonding over fighting a troll is a great scene. And listener Kelsey also mentions that, that, uh, friendships are just one of the key, key parts of the story. And I, I agree that, I mean, maybe this is where your defense of like Ron can just be the best friend and that has value. Like it's hard to define what Ron is in the book. I think of all the, of all the characters, like he's, he's not the most clearly like archetypical, uh, sure. you know, this is what his role is other than being just the best friend for most of the series, other than his really angsty moments in books four and five. <laughs> Let's be honest. Harry has plenty of angsty Oh yeah. Moments yeah. Book too. five is just a, a, an essay on angst. <laughs> Which is surprising that he has it there instead of after 10 years of abuse. <laughs> but speaking of, you know, how all of them play their different parts. That's one thing I love about Harry Potter and that I think makes Harry such a great character as opposed to a lot of other fiction is that he's not the main hero. Like he doesn't, he's not born to greatness and can defeat everything. Like he actually blunders quite a bit. And I think if it were just him, he would have failed probably in book one. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but all through the series, you see this, but as even here in book one, that everything he does, it's because all of his friends help him. And sometimes his enemies. <laughs> but, you know, even just looking at that last scene, Hermione's the one who does the logic puzzle and Ron does the chess set and heck, even Quirrell does the troll. Like everybody has their thing along the way and Harry doesn't do it all, which is kind of refreshing. But in fact, he doesn't do anything in that process. Well, he gets the key. He gets the key. He gets the, the key. And which, by the way, Hermione's oddly good on the broom in that scene. <laughs> Speaking of, of, of unexpected skills. True. And, and they're goners at the devil's snare without her. Yes, Hermione saves, oh. saves in the devil's snare. Okay, Hermione so, does the logic puzzle. That's one of my favorite scenes, actually, of Hermione is the plant. And she's like, but there's no fire. How do I start a fire? And Ron's like, are you a witch or what? <laughs> and I love that because it suddenly shows that I'm not this brilliant person who's cool under pressure. Like, she's probably terrified. Yeah. <laughs> and she's been a muggle most of her life. All right, real quick, since you mentioned Muggle, I want to, the, the thing that sparked the most conversation in our request for <laughs> feedback was, uh, listener John said, can you discuss the social implications that the ability to perform magic is purely a function of winning the genetic lottery? Even among the wizards who are not pure-blood elitists, it seems that wizards hold themselves as superior to the Muggles and squibs. And when I was reading this book, there's a moment early on that I kind of like, that, like it just felt odd where, um, Harry asks Hagrid, like, why don't, you know, why, why are the wizards all secret? And Hagrid just says, oh, well, the muggles would just want us to fix all their problems. So we don't tell them we exist. <laughs> I get the feeling later. <laughs> Which, but that is a very elitist true. moment right that there. That is true. <laughs> I get the feeling throughout the series, though, that it, they stay secret more because of, like, 
persecution, Salem witch trials. Mm-hmm. It's one they bring up. Um, but the level of magic they can hurl out makes true. me think they're not really in danger. <laughs> but I, you know, you don't want to like have to run from the muggles your whole life. Yeah, uh, well, and there were a couple other back and forth about that. Listener Megan said, I never got that impression from the main characters in the story, maybe Ron now and then, um, about this kind of, like, superiority of wizards. And certainly, the bad vo- wizards, that becomes one of the, like, the hallmarks of knowing Absolutely. it's a bad wizard is they think less of muggles. Pure blood. Yeah, and, and they, they value pure bloods, they think less of half-bloods, and they think less of muggles. Um, and then listener Tessa said, linking magical ability to economic privilege could be an interesting discussion. Um, magical ability to generate food and water with basically no effort means that we, they could alleviate a lot of suffering in the world, but they don't. But then neither do we. <laughs> in the real world. <laughs> it is. Fair point. It's something that Tessa says. Um... But she says, even without, like, that kind of economic, you know, Marxist reading, she says, wizards, in the book, there does almost seem to be kind of a, a, an air of condescension to the muggles, um, where muggle studies is a useless cl- class to take. Like, it's looked down upon if you mm. care about the muggle culture, and there's always kind of a bless them, <laughs> you know. Oh, you're, you're so sweet. <laughs> Added bless your the muggles. <laughs> well, don't you see that anywhere you, you go th- in life? What do you think about like- Mr. Weasley in that, though? Because he, Mr. Weasley he's one that does muggles. But, but he also does the bless them. Like, he, I think he says that about muggles more than any other character. Oh, yeah. Oh, electricity, or ecultricity, bless them. <laughs> bless their hearts. <laughs> that they fall for all this muggle baiting that the bad wizards will do to them. <laughs> Which I love the muggle baiting, that, like, you're, you make your keys disappear. <laughs> they, they, they Every time I lose my key, I think of that. I'm like, did it just shrink? <laughs> I will admit it, okay? <laughs> I, I honestly can say that it's never bothered me, and even after reading all of this conversation, it still just doesn't, it doesn't really bother me. Well, I think it in real life too like any university you go to that plays sports you're going to think of your biggest rival as oh but them you know Mm -hmm. we're better they're less and you always think that your position is the best yeah well i think though again the the question that's most interesting to me in this discussion is the one that kind of comes up with haggard like why do they keep it so separate and if the reason really is well they'd want us to solve their problems that's not the best reason. <laughs> True. Well, I think that's Hagrid's like we, we, Yes, I, but it is coming from Hagrid, and Hagrid's not uh, a Hermione figure. The that's always the box. <laughs> yes, that's always giving us the, the, the true reasons. And like you said, later on in the series, there are some more. I can only imagine the feedback we'll be getting of people yelling at, at our Facebook feed. <laughs> the reason is, don't you know, in book eight, no, there's no book eight. In book, book six, page 47, it explains. I kind of want to pull that out right now. <laughs> what that says. I, 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 it just, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just totally shallow, but really, <laughs> it, it just, I mean, the whole, the, the whole story stands up on this thing. So right. you either take it, you either take it or you don't. And if it's going to bother you that much, then I can't imagine anybody really enjoying these novels if they're re- hung, so hung up on the fact that the muggle world and the wizarding world are separate. Well, and since there's an international, international statute of secrecy, I'm assuming that a lot of thought went into this. And since Dumbledore's not out there advocating for publicity, I'm guessing there's just a big history that they learned in History of Magic, but mm-hmm. we didn't get it because Harry slept through it. But at the same time... Um- <laughs> Like starting from book four on, you got you get the sense, particularly from Hermione, that not all is right in the Wizarding World. True. That there is some need for like there's some social issues yeah. that have never been addressed because it's just the way it is. But most and- of those Dumbledore advocates for. It. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna go with ad- 
Dumbledore as my moral compass in this. <laughs> and since he's not out there saying, we should talk to the muggles and let us, I'm going to yeah. say there's a good reason. But uh, even Dumbledore, you know, he likes lemon drops and, you know. Oh, sure. I mean, Dumbledore has his own kind of affinity for the muggle world. Uh, he's not nearly as, and, and the whole idea of, uh, blood and, and cleanliness of blood and, I mean, those are all, Rolling is, is tapping into real world issues of, of eugenics. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, yeah, absolutely. And, I think he'd be the first one to say, we should be kind to muggles <laughs> and we should integrate more and not like be so exclusive mm-hmm. and egocentric. And all right. A couple other quick uh, comments from listener uh, Linnell. The most powerful idea is that death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Um, and it kind of reminded me of our discussion of the uh, Gregard book. Where we're like, this is a children's book that opens with the murder of a family. So is Harry Potter. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, so there, I think there's something about in the children's literature, and this is, you know it goes back to fairy, like the the Grimm brothers fairy tales, like this air of menace or fear that can permeate children's books. Maybe we don't need to coddle children quite as much. <laughs> Yeah, and it's the it's the idea from Neil Gaiman that um that it's an inoculation, it's right? An emotional inoculation. Yeah. Right. Well, and I love that. And people have said that the books get darker as they go along and uh Rowling's response to that was if I remember right, something along the lines of did you not notice that Voldemort's head grew out of the back <laughs> of Coral's head? Like, do you think that was pretty? <laughs> yes. So yeah, that, uh, another comment, uh, listener Ethne just wants a discussion about Voldemort's face on the back of Coral's head. Is that weird to you? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I remember, uh, getting to that section and thinking, didn't see that coming. <laughs> okay, but the best part about this is, you know, so he wears this turban with garlic all over. My favorite scene because of this is during winter when Fred and George get put into tension because they bewitched snowballs to bounce off the back of Quirrell's turban. <laughs> Dude, they're throwing snowballs at Voldemort's face. <laughs> was he there? Because it says like partway through. Yes, because okay. it was after he tried to rob the bank and failed. That's when Voldemort got attached yeah, to the back of his head. Quirrell says, then he had to keep a closer <laughs> eye on me after that. Okay. Wow. Um, one other question though. Uh, why does Ferenzi help Harry? The, the, so this is the centaur. Most of the centaurs are incredibly aloof and <laughs> completely separated from what's happening. Uh, but there's one who like deigns to have a full conversation with Harry, let Harry ride on his back and actually rescues him. The common him. mule? Yes. <laughs> I would vote that there's just one in every bunch. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's that, that. <laughs> he's probably young and, you know, the rebellious type that's like, you guys, my parents, he's Harry. You adults don't know what you're talking about. I know best. <laughs> and this is how I want to do things. Todd, any thoughts yeah. on? Just the, he's uh, the, the exception. I mean, he's exceptional in the truest sense of the word. So he's an, he's an exception to, uh, to what's going on in his culture and he's recognizes the importance of the of of harry and the situation and he does what he feel like needs to happen because we haven't whipped out any weird theorists yet <laughs> <laughs> um i was teaching some rhetoric and i was talking about a guy named haikawa 
who <laughs> he t- he talks about good writing and argumentation goes up what he calls up and down the ladder of abstraction, which means you go from hard concrete details like the very specific things that you you give that example and you, it's very the specificity is unmistakable, and you go up to very abstract that's applicable to anything and is very broad and general. And you don't want to get lost in the middle. He calls that bureaucratic language that's meaningless to everyone. Um, <laughs> but to me, the centaurs in general live in that broad, abstract general. Like, they're they're obsessed with the movements of the stars that mean things for the grand state of the entire planet. And there's nothing that an individual can do about that. Whereas Frenzy sure. is seeing this hard, concrete thing that says, Harry Potter matters. Like, Harry Potter is going to make a difference in the outcome of these large, abstract, grand movements. Whereas most of the centaurs are, just say, it's so big, we can't deal with it. <laughs> it's so big, it's it's beyond our ability to have an They're influence. They're like the historians of the present. They just want to tell the story without being part of the story. Yeah. It's, in some ways, it's, it, you know, we read that thing earlier where Harry says, I'm going to stop Voldemort. Like, that's that's me. That's what I do. I think Forenzi, in some ways, has the same motivation. He just knows that in order to stop Voldemort, he has to save Harry uh, because of his knowledge of prophecies and things. Um, and so he acts, yeah. All right. Well, I'm getting a signal from producer Andrew that we need to be wrapping this up. So any final thoughts on Harry for this year? Again, we may revisit this <laughs> franchise <laughs> again in the future and maybe talk about a different character next time. <laughs> So, Tiana, any final thoughts about Harry? I don't know. I think I, I think I covered everything I really wanted to cover in here. All right, Todd. Uh, I just wanted to say one final thing in my closing arguments about Harry's um, moral compass. Uh, <laughs> he has. He certainly has a flexible relationship with rules, <laughs> <laughs> but. But I th- I feel like his focus is always clear, and and that his motivations are good. <laughs> like if he right. were a D and D character, he would be like, uh, I don't know, chaotic good, yes. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> um, but 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 absolutely good. Yeah. And all of the everything that he does, every time that he steps in to try to help someone, it's always uh, to help the weak. Um, he's always trying to make what he considers uh, wrong right. And I think that there's something really uh, to be celebrated in that uh, for him as a character. I know that some people get hung up on Harry Potter because of what they consider to be moral ambiguity, and I just don't see it. Yeah. I don't see because the, the I, rules I don't see are any not... moral ambiguity. Right, rules are not morals. Right, and and his motivations for breaking the rules isn't to go be a rebel. It's because there's a greater good that he needs to sometimes to accomplish. It is. Like when he keeps sneaking out to go to the mirror of said. That's not for any good. But, but in general, yes. Yeah, but even in- that, I mean, it's not because he's going out to, you know, go go crazy he's down. He's not being down Fred down and George. It. Yeah, he's not being Fred and George. He's going because no. he's never seen his mom and dad before. Right. Which, <laughs> maybe this will be my closing thing. I love that because for most of the book, you don't really see him mourning after his parents because they've been gone his whole life. Like every once in a while, he says something about my parents being dead or I, I don't know what my parents would think. But here, you see him fixated on his family. And that's the one thing he wants the most over anything else is his family. Um, and I love that because it's just kind of this short little hint of, yes, this still is a huge part of his life, even though you don't see it. Yeah. Uh, my final thought, this series makes me feel more emotions 
<laughs> than almost like like we've talked about some of the things that we've talked about. Like I enjoy and they're pleasant. Like we did an episode on Castle and Bones. Like I enjoy those. They're they're fun entertainment. I think they're well done. But this series like makes me feel things at a deeper emotional level than a lot of the other ones that we've talked about. And I think that's I what some of the best stories are going to do. Are they going to they're gonna, you're going to care. And sometimes you're going to be frustrated and you're going to be angry. Like Tom was like, like, why don't you just go tell a teacher? <laughs> um, but it's because you're, you're feeling things more so than some of the other stories that can be fun and enjoyable, but they're maybe a little emotionally fluffy, mm-hmm. um, than, than what I'm able to get from Harry Potter. And it's been a long time since I've reread, um, Harry Potter. So like in the lead up to most of the books, I think I re, I reread like the whole series before each book was coming out. <laughs> and so was, wow. I, like, I knew Harry Potter really well, but now for the last seven or eight years, like, since the last book, I don't think I've reread the whole, you know, the whole series again or reread this I first book. I may have, like, times. listened to them on audiobook uh, <laughs> at some point, but going back and rereading this first one, I'm like, oh, this is why I care so much about this franchise. <laughs> this is, and this is why, like, for my students today that I have as college students that grew up, you know, like I said, some of them without, never knowing a world without Harry Potter, but still so many of them talk about Harry Potter as though like this was the defining story of their, you know, their adolescence. Like this is the one that resonated with them and their friends and their peers. I I've heard Harry Potter criticized. Um, how, what was it most recently? Like, well, Harry Potter didn't win the Newberry. So, (laughs) Oh, darn. 450 million copies of it out in the world. (laughs) Uh, but then, but then I, I remember something that somebody told me once, uh, for whom I have loads and loads of respect. Uh, but they said when, when something is like universally admired, uh, I always have to wonder what's wrong with it, (laughs) which is, which is a, you know, elitist, obviously, but, um, I, you know, I can see that sometimes. I think some things reach superstar, you know, universally acclaim because there's nothing, you know, <laughs> there's nothing, uh, what would be the word? Nothing objectionable. Uh, yeah, there's nothing objectionable. <laughs> or, or nothing, it's, nothing that makes anyone think about it. <laughs> or it's so formulaic that it's able to just pull on every, you know, it touches every chord right at the right moment. And they followed a, a pattern perfectly, uh, or anyway, th- I think there are lots of reasons why uh, things can become really, really popular that aren't based on just quality. Uh, and I don't, I, I just, I think that Harry Potter is as, as popular as it is because it's really, really, really good. Um, the, the writing is top notch. Uh, there's a lot of deep stuff going on that, uh, a lot of people don't get. Um, and that's fine. Um, the characters are well developed. Uh, it's, it, it, it's moral compass always points in the, what I would consider to be the right direction. Um, I just, I think that it's, it stands, uh, as a great piece of literature just because it's a great piece of literature, not because it's formulaic. Or because, you know, she, she found, uh, the right mathematical equation for storytelling and then, and then did it over and over and over again. I think it's really a remarkable piece of literature I, and touches us really deeply, uh, which is awesome. 
I do want to say it is a wonderful postmodern blending of so many genres that, <laughs> yeah. you know, you have the building's Roman story, you have the, the school story, you have the, uh, you know, the, the high fantasy, you have the comic relief and all these other things. So there's a wonderful blend of genres within there, but I think it certainly stands on its own and not just as, uh, the sum of its parts. It certainly goes beyond the sum of those parts. And, and, and people always want, when you're done reading Harry Potter, there's this, there's this feeling of emptiness, like, I know Andrew's gonna kill me for this. <laughs> but there's this feeling Andrew, like, uh, I, what's the next Harry Potter? Real quick. He's, Andrew is staring at the clock, shaking his head back and forth right now. <laughs> well, it was actually perfect timing. You said Andrew is going to kill me. And, and he was, he, he was sitting there head. shaking his head, and he's not even listening to the earbud. He doesn't know you said that. Todd just said, Andrew's gonna kill me for going on one more tangent. Final right. no, I just, So Todd, Todd, wrap up your final thought. And, no, and this is my read... my final thought is this: when you finish reading Harry Potter, there is an emptiness that you feel inside. Like there, there is no way that you could ever go back and read Harry Potter for the first time again, unless you're like me and you have a horrible memory. And you can't Which remember is what why happens I'm in any terrified for my kids to read it because they're going to grow up in the culture where they're going to know all these things. And I'm like, no, you have to know that Dumbledore dies on your own. <laughs> right. Oh, it was but, like uh, trying to keep my daughter spoiler. away from uh, from <laughs> Luke, Luke and his father. I kept her away from it and finally got her show and and like. She just looked at me and said, is he really? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I did it. I made it. But it's so hard. I've given up on doing it for my but There is children. nothing. <laughs> my point, my final point is this. There is nothing. There is no, if you like Harry Potter, then this is the next, like, this is the next Harry Potter. There is no other Harry Potter. No, there's not. It's not Percy Jackson. It's not Twilight. It's nothing. Like, there, there is might be no... one. It just hasn't found a publisher yet. I'm working on it. Tell <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know if it happens. <laughs> Please let me be an advanced reader. I, I would love to read an advanced copy of whatever you're reading if you think it's as good as Harry Potter because there is, I mean, there are other things that are great pieces of literature in their own way, but there is, the the Harry Potter recipe has never been repeated as far as I know. <laughs> I haven't read everything, but I just think it's a it's a fool's errand to try to find the, the, your Harry Potter replacement. You, there is only one. <laughs> you get it one time for the first time in your life. So if you have not read this, readers, uh, I highly recommend it. Um, but you just have to know you only get to read it for the first time once. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode, and our producer, Andrew, is very thankful for that. So thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes, and please, please, please leave us a review. Um, it helps us immensely, and we have stalled out. So let's let's keep those reviews coming, listeners. Uh, links to things we talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com, and that's where you can find a list of all of our shows. You can suggest characters or stories for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections, which may be coming with this episode, by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at ProtagonistPod, uh, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. Uh, Tiana, do you have social media at all? Any Twitter feeds you want to I have announce? a Twitter feed, but I don't think I've posted anything on it in years. <laughs> I mostly lurk. Okay. We have a Twitter lurker as of yesterday. Our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist uh, podcast. And if you go just like that, that page, you'll get updates on... Uh, every episode that posts and we'll also when we throw out a question like saying hey we're going to be talking about Harry Potter do you have any thoughts that's where you can go join that conversation so please go like the Facebook fan page and if you'd like to buy a topic for us to discuss or just support us with a financial donation you can click on the support link at our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist thank you again for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story so long so long
my gosh, I can't even see this. I'm trying to read it by candlelight. <laughs> I still don't understand why you record by candlelight, Todd. In true Harry Potter style. <laughs> I really think I need to go. Oh, I've got a flashlight right here. Hang on one sec. He really records by candlelight, Tiana. We're not kidding. Adelie's never been on the, the final product before. It's come up in our recordings. Why? Okay. I'm going to read this one more time. <laughs> That's really hard. I don't know how wizards do it. I suppose they use... Uh, Magical they use candles? Magical candles. I was trying to read a book by firelight in the fireplace. Not ideal. Here we go. (laughs) That was a strain on the eyes. (laughs) All right. Here we go. 